0: Today, we're going to be talking about you and about your day to day. We're going to be discussing scripture that will force you to reevaluate your commitments. But before we get started, I want you to know that everything I'm about to discuss with you is the product of conviction and repentance in my life. This message may feel like a rebuke, but if it is a rebuke, it is one from which I've just recovered these habits and assumptions which scripture condemns are often my habits and assumptions and i feel a little vulnerable and a little awkward about outlining the dangers of a burden of temptation under which i still struggle we're going to be talking about sin today a particular subset of sin that i'm especially attracted that is especially attracted to me i stumble over it It is an obstacle that hinders me from experiencing the beauty of Christ, and it is an obstacle that hinders my church from growing into Christ's image. And I wouldn't be here today unless I suspected that it might be an obstacle for you, too. So, 20th century economics leans upon a principle, sometimes referred to as the law of the vital few. The concept is simple. 20% of the members of any community are responsible always for 80% of the work. In any organization, political, nonprofit, religious, it doesn't matter, you can convince 80% of your people to write a check, to like you on Facebook, and to wear your t-shirt, but you can only expect the real work, the this isn't pretty but it's got to get done work. The grab a paintbrush and hammer work, the wipe the snot off of that two year old's nose, collar, arm, and shoe work, you can only expect that work from the 20%. The contributions of the 80% are trivial in comparison to the contributions of the 20%. Eight years ago, I worked at a church coordinating volunteers with a handful of other guys. I can remember having the same conversation. A dozen times after we had exhausted ourselves on some project we had all the elements in place everything necessary to do well except the people inevitably somebody would lift up their hands shrug and say 80 20 rule even though we had literally thousands of members we knew we could only expect a few hundred volunteers Now, this is the world's rule. It's an international economic principle. It governs small business practice, political lobbies, enterprise management, everything. I can't tell you how many times I've read about the 80 20 rule in Fast Company or Harvard Business Review. Managers must operate within the bounds of the 80 20 rule. Nonprofits and charities must accept the inevitable restrictions of the 80 20 rule. And churches. It is a fact that churches in America are limited by and operate within the bounds of the 80-20 rule. I was told, we were all told, to work with it. It is what it is. You could stand on that stage and turn a mop bucket of water into wine and the 80% would cheer and do relatively little. But listen, Jesus isn't okay with the 80-20 rule. I want to talk to you today about Jesus' response to inaction or inactivity. I want to be very clear here. We're not going to be talking about negative actions. We're not talking about doing the wrong thing. We're talking about doing nothing and why that's a serious problem. Jesus speaks at length about inaction. And what he says is not only profound, it's terrifying. But we can't quite grasp the gravity of the disease of inactivity, unless we see a picture of the healthy body. OK, So I want everybody to turn, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4:11. And I want everybody to turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4:11, because you're going to participate with me on this deal. We'll do what we do sometimes uh, with kids and youth. Everybody hold up your Bible if you've got it. I love your Bible. OK, Wow, that was fast. OK. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. In love. So, this is a relatively straightforward passage. And I thought, since we're talking about passivity, since we're talking about inaction, I thought that you guys could help me read it. Okay, so I'm going to push you a little bit out of your comfort zone. We're a quiet church, and I want to make us a little bit louder for just a minute. Uh, so, I'm going to ask you some leading questions. And I want you guys to shout out the answers as soon as you can find them in the passage. All of the answers are in the passage. I'm not looking for anything profound. So just grab the answer out of the passage. And it doesn't have to be in unison either. Uh, just as soon as you find it, shout it. Okay? As soon as you find it, shout it. Alright. First and easiest question. What did Jesus give to the church? Right. Jesus gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, evangelists, Shepherds and teachers. Now, why did Jesus give the church apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, and teachers? Perfect. To equip the saints for the working of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, who does the work of the ministry? The saints. Now, why do the saints do the work of the ministry? For the building up of the body of Christ. Now let's go back for a minute because this one's tricky. How is the body of Christ built up? The work of the ministry, right? The work of the ministry builds up the body of Christ. And who does the work of the ministry? The saints. So, let's skip back into the passage. What does it look like when the local church is built up? Okay, we attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, and we grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fullness of Christ. Now, why does the church? Listen, why does the church need to grow up? Perfect. So that we're no longer children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that we're not deceived like children would be. So, so he moves into the question, what do we do now? So what do we do now, guys? We speak, we speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Now, how is the local church related to Christ? Well, he's, he's the head, right? He's the head from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each, work, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is important. Think about this for a minute. What has to happen if the body is to grow so that it builds itself up in love? Each part. Each part must be working properly. Now, this makes sense because Paul just said that the body of Christ is built up how? How? The work of the ministry. And who does the work of the ministry? The saints. That's you. You. If you've been shocked by your own corruption and pled before Jesus your only hope for rescue, and if you laid down your life to take up your cross and follow him, you are a saint. This passage is about me and it's about you. And Paul's picture of a healthy church has everything to do with me and you. Listen, Christ has given us catalysts, the scriptures and the pastor elders and teachers and missionaries to equip us for ministry. We do the ministry, not them. Ministry is our wheelhouse. Equipping is their wheelhouse. It is through our ministry, through your ministry, that Redeemer will be built up so that we look just like Jesus. It is through our ministry, through your ministry, that Redeemer will be united in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Christ will work through our ministry, through your ministry, so that we'd never be deceived. And Christ will work through our ministry, so that the body, you and me, and all of our members, will build itself up in love. The healthy local church grows by the blood and the sweat and the tears of the saints through Christ. And that's you. So this is, our ba- this is our backdrop. And I want you to remember that picture. The picture of a healthy local church growing into unity and knowledge of Christ by the work and ministry of everyday saints. As we look into Jesus and his stories. Now listen, the stories of Jesus are are powerful, and they're beautiful, and they're terrifying. They should rock you. They should jolt you out of your habits, out of your assumptions. So we're going to look at three of them, back to back to back. They're all about the same thing. And I want you to remember that picture of a healthy church while we do it. So turn to Matthew 25. Now bear with me here, because I'm going to read these stories just as Jesus spoke them, without stopping. Because you'll begin to see patterns developing. Patterns that you might miss if you studied each story independently. And you should know that this is a good practice for your private reading of Scripture. You'll be, ama- you'll be amazed at the themes you catch, at the ironic dialogue and the character development and the illusions that you'll pick up on if you read in big chunks like we're about to. So let's get to it. Everybody hold up your Bibles if you've got Matthew 25. Okay, great. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, "Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I ha- scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers so that at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has uh, more will be given and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes into His glory and all of the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. The King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was naked and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in, uh, sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now let's set aside for a moment the terrifying warnings implicit in these stories. You should feel the heat of these warnings, but that isn't what we're here to discuss, at least not yet. I want you to notice the common thread. So let's start from the beginning. Before we can understand the first story, we have to understand the wedding ceremony in Jesus' context. The ceremony is simple enough. And you can actually pick this up, I think, by paying close attention to this passage and a few others in the Gospels. Ancient Israeli weddings weren't planned in exactly the same way that American weddings are. There was a betrothal period, okay, after which the bride would expect her bridegroom to come and escort her to her new home. The bride had some notion of when her groom would return, because his return coincides with the completion of the betrothal period. But the bride, with her companions, would wait with great anticipation at the bride's home, watching for any sign of the bridegroom and his companions. Take note of that, because it's important. The bride and her companions keep watch patiently, Scanning the horizon for signs of the coming bridegroom, the ceremony initiates as soon as the bride and her companions hear the herald of the bridegroom and see the light from the lamps of the bridegroom and his companions on the horizon. As soon as they hear it and see and see the signs, and as soon as they hear and see the signs of the return of the bridegroom, they light lamps of their own, leave the house join the bridegroom, and are escorted into the wedding feast in the new home that the groom has prepared for his bride. So this is our backdrop. And in the case of Jesus' story, the bride's companions are waiting and watching for some time because the bridegroom's return is unexpectedly delayed. They watch and they wait late into the evening, but they can't see the lights of the coming bridegroom on the horizon. And this is where the story turns. The wise companions, and listen to this, the wise companions had prepared for the delay of the bridegroom. They were mindful. They considered that the bridegroom may delay, and they prepared accordingly. The foolish companions did nothing. Listen, they were there. They just didn't think about it. I want you to sympathize with them for a moment. They were there, right? I mean, they were there with the bridal party the entire time. They just hadn't considered the bridegroom. At midnight, when they least expect him, the herald proclaims the bridegroom's arrival and the bridal party panics. The fools are out of oil and the wise companions have none to spare. Now, I want you to close your eyes for a moment with me. Everybody close your eyes, and we want, I, want to, I want you to imagine something with me, okay? The bride of Christ watches and waits for Christ's return. His return is unexpectedly delayed. One day, though, we will be stirred by a shout of victory, and we will see his light shining on the horizon when we least expect it, and Christ will call his bride to himself and he will escort her to the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, this parable is a picture of our hope. This is a picture of the gospel. The church waits impatiently, eagerly anticipating her coming bridegroom. The betrothal period is nearly over, and he will soon escort her victorious to her new home, and to the great wedding feast. Yet there are some among us who will do nothing to prepare for his coming, and these will not be welcome at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay. So without a breath to dissolve the tension, Jesus throws out another story. A wealthy man is leaving the country for an indefinite time. He leaves money, a lot of money, with three servants. The first servant is given five talents. The second servant is given two talents. And the third servant is given one talent, each according to his ability. The first two servants immediately leave and go to work. They take their master's resources seriously and they invest them in something worthwhile. The third servant, though, was so frightened for the consequences of failure that he does nothing. He doesn't invest his master's resources in anything. He fears the master. He fears the risk. He fears the the consequences. So I want you to see this, this, because this is important. He doesn't go and spend his master's resources on himself. He doesn't go to Best Buy. He doesn't go to Vegas. He does nothing. Listen, he does nothing. The master returns and praises the stewardship of the first two servants. Not only does he exult in their faithfulness, he promises to give them great authority and he asks them to enter into his joy. But this is where the story turns. I want you to note the dialogue that takes place here because it's telling. The third servant speaks. Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now, turns out I've always misinterpreted this story. And last week when I was working on this sermon, I was convinced that the focus of this story is on misunderstanding the master. The servant didn't serve, he didn't invest because he misunderstood. So the takeaway, I thought, was simple. You won't invest God's resources well if you don't understand God. If you fear Him, or if you misunderstand, that's negative fear, by the way, uh, or if you misunderstand His nature, you won't invest His resources well. But I want you to think about this guy's words because they're important. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. I want you to stop and think about the story thus far. Does anything, does anything about this narrative suggest that this master who has praised his diligent servants and promised them great authority and joy is a hard man, a thief. So we begin to see behind the curtain. We begin to see what the master sees because the master calls the wickedness and laziness of this guy from a mile away. He asks, look, if you really were afraid of me, If you were so worried about losing my money, why not invest it in a bank and collect the interest? The answer? Because at the end of the day, sometimes we think what we think because it makes our lives easier. Sometimes we construct these elaborate facades that will permit us to do and say those things which we really treasure. Sometimes we cultivate an idea of who God is... And what God is like that allows us to remain stagnant. Sometimes, listen, sometimes we hide behind theological notions. Sometimes we excuse passivity with theology. Because sometimes we are just like that wicked servant who rested in the cool shade of his master's rage. So without a breath's pause, Jesus finishes with prophecy. Prophecy. One day he will return, and he will sit on a throne of victory. And when he returns, all men will stand before him. There are, he explains, two types of men, those who served and those who didn't. He looks at a throng on his right, and he praises them. You gave me water, he says. You visited me in prison while I was sick. You gave me food to eat. And the masses respond, when did we feed you, give you water, visit you in prison, Lord? His answer is profound. You served me when you served the least of these. And he turns to his left. You didn't give me any water when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me in prison or while I was sick. You gave me no food when I was hungry. Again, the masses ask, When did we see you, to give you water, to visit visit you in prison, or to give you food to eat? He answers, As you did nothing for the least of these, so you did nothing for me. Listen, they are condemned for their failure to act. They are sent to hell on the basis of their inaction. Now, it's not difficult to see beyond the thin veil of this prophecy, but let's tease it out for a moment. What characterizes the sheep from the goats? Did they know they were serving Jesus? Did they know they would be rewarded? No. Look, one of the most remarkable aspects of this prophecy is that both groups ask the same questions. Both groups share the same presuppositions. What differentiates the sheep from the goats? Service. That's it. Action. One group is passive, one group is active, one group is condemned, one group enters into eternal life. So, what's the common thread? Jesus just threw out three stories back to back to back two parables and a prophecy. One common thread. What is this sermon about? Think about it for a moment. What is the common thread? Jesus' sermon is about those who fail to act. It is a juxtaposition, a a, a comparison of those who act and those who do not. The only common variable is inaction, inactivity. And this is when we start to ask questions. And guys, listen, on a broad level, the questions you bring to Scripture will define the quality of time in Scripture. You need to ask questions when you read. Always ask questions when you read. Sometimes it's nearly impossible to understand a passage without asking questions. And in this case, we have one very important question to ask this passage. Why? Why? Look, Jesus isn't much of a rules guy. So I'll give you a hint. The point of Jesus' sermon isn't don't remain stagnant. Christ always addresses the heart. The behavior is just a window into the heart. The reason the why question is so important is because Jesus gives us a picture of the heart that drives an action, Of the heart that rem- th- that the heart that is behind stagnation. He teaches us why we are idle. He means for us to ask why. We are meant to ask of the virgins, why didn't you bring oil? We are meant to ask of the servants, why didn't you just do something with your master's cash? And we are meant to ask of the goats, why didn't you just give a glass of water? The answers to those questions will teach us something important. They will teach us about our own hearts They will teach us about our own sin and how our passions corrupt us. So let's revisit for a moment the condemned parties. Let's ask them why. The foolish virgins neglect to prepare. They are inactive and it has everything to do with the delay of the bridegroom. The picture is clear. The wise prepare for the coming bridegroom. The foolish do not. So the answer to the question, why did the virgins fail to prepare for the coming of the bridegroom, is actually implicit in the question. They were not mindful. They did not think about his return. They did not anticipate the return of the bridegroom. They were not mindful. They failed to act because they failed to think. And many of us, who fail to serve our church, who fail to engage radically, do so because we never think about Jesus' return. Christ is coming. He is coming, and we have no clue when He'll be here. Those who are mindful, those who are... Who are always considering his return? Who are not captivated by this world, but whose hopes are set on the new earth and the coming King? These will spin themselves daily to prepare his bride. They will work fer- feverishly to see the bride of Christ made ready for his coming. So the wicked servant allowed the resources of his master to terminate upon himself. He failed to invest. And do you remember his words? He said that he failed to invest because he was afraid. Afraid of the master, afraid of risk, afraid of consequences. But the master asks a pointed question, and soon it becomes very clear that the servant had constructed a false representation of the master, which allowed him to remain inactive. He had convinced himself that his laziness was acceptable because his master was a hard and angry and corrupt man. And many of us who fail to invest in discipleship, who fail to engage in children's ministry, and who fail to take initiative to see Redeemer grow into maturity, justify our inaction by erecting a theological facade. We convince ourselves... Listen. Listen, Redeemer. We convince ourselves that God is sovereign over His church... And that he will grow it as he sees fit. We convince ourselves that excellence at work, after all, which is, after all, a very good and godly thing, prohibits our investment in church. We convince ourselves that we cannot serve our families well and also invest in Redeemer. And we convince ourselves that we don't know enough, haven't read enough, don't love enough enough, don't obey enough, will do more damage than good. These are theological lies and they must be torn down. The goats, those men and women who have failed to serve, who have failed to, dr- to give drink to the thirsty, to give food to the hungry, to visit the prisoner and the sick, they failed because they didn't see all interaction as an opportunity to treasure Christ. They hadn't the affection and gratitude to respond to all men in the way that Christ responded to their sin. They didn't comprehend the universality of the gospel response. Christ came to save the masses, the weak and the frail, taking their sin and nailing it to the cross in the ultimate expression of service and love. Thus, we will shed grace upon the masses. Thus we will give his kindness to the weak. Yet there will be some who take for granted the gospel. They will hear it and they will respond. They will be a part of our churches and they will tithe and they will sing and they will shake hands. But they will not extend the love and grace of Christ to the weak because they never understood how weak they are. They never understood their own desperation, and they thus never sympathized with the desperation of others. They never got their frailty, and, they never, and they'll never give to the frail. And many of us who fail to serve the least of these, who fail to invest our time and energy visiting our brothers and sisters in hospitals or prisons, who fail to make a casserole for the hungry in our congregation, who fail to give financial support to our care group members in need, do so because we haven't grasped the profound condescension of the cross. So at the start of this thing, I told you that this message meant a lot to me because it was about me. I came to this church four years ago. I spent the first half decade of my life as a believer serving the church. I I was an intern Which is a funny word for a full time youth pastor who you don't have to pay much. (laughs) I spent myself on that church, and Tara did too. When seminary became an option, though, we left town for Fort Worth. And when we settled down there, I made a decision. This was a season for school, I thought. I had too many books to read. Too many papers to write. I was responsible to my wife and I couldn't meet that responsibility while spending time and energy on school and church. So I convinced myself that this was my season for learning. This was my season for growth. So as soon as we found Redeemer, I made it clear to Dusty Devers that I had no interest in leading or serving. No interest in care group ministry. I'd attend, but I wouldn't spend myself. I wouldn't serve the youth. I wouldn't help with dig. This was, after all, my season for growth. Excellence in school felt like a noble goal. And in a way it is. Four years had passed. I was comfortable. And I mean I was comfortable. I was convinced that I was making wise decisions. I was inactive. I was passive and I felt great about it. So in May, I had a test, uh, an echocardiogram. It's like a sonogram for your heart. And I discovered actually, my doctor discovered that I had a disease. It's called a connective tissue disease. It means that certain parts of my body never stop growing. And this wouldn't be that big of a deal if one of those parts weren't in my heart. We found out that day that a portion of my heart was growing, and it wasn't going to stop growing. There isn't any medicine to treat it, at least at this phase, so this means that I'm going to have to have surgery unless the Lord chooses to heal me. Open-heart surgery in something like five years. I wish you could feel the sense of panic that I felt that afternoon. I was trucked. I was scared, and I was in a frenzy because I kept thinking about the time I had wasted. I kept thinking about how much time I'd spent Netflixing. <laughs> I kept thinking about how many conversations I hadn't had, about how many opportunities I'd wasted. So I began to invest. An opportunity to serve came when VBS needed a coordinator. And I jumped at the opportunity because I was, I was afraid. I was afraid to waste any more time. I thought, by the grace of God, this was simply another opportunity to invest But something brilliant happened at VBS. When the boots hit the ground, I surveyed the landscape and I saw faithful Christ followers. I saw men and women pouring themselves out on the least of these. I saw the creative energies and talents of over a dozen volunteers come together to paint a picture of the gospel for a bunch of kids. I went home every afternoon, and you can ask Tara, I went home every afternoon thrilled about the church because I saw Jesus there. And this is when Ephesians 4 started to make sense. When we serve, we paint a picture of Jesus. And Jesus is beautiful. He is lovely. And when you see him pictured before you in humility and love, it stirs your affection. When you see Him, you love Him, and you want to follow Him. And I saw Him that week vividly in the service of more than a dozen faithful Christ followers. So look, I felt the grace of Christ the day I encountered my mortality. It was the grace of Christ to pull me out of my stupor, to remind me that I was sitting on His resources, to remind me that tomorrow wasn't guaranteed, That I needed to live every single day in expectation of Christ's return. It was the grace of Christ to remind me that the only lasting investment is his bride. And it was the grace of Christ to show himself to me vividly in the service of the faithful. You and me are in the same position. We have a limited amount of time, we are stewards of the Master's resources. We are stewards of the grace and mercy of the gospel. And the bridegroom is on the horizon. Watch for him. Invest in his resources well. And, his, and serve his people until you're exhausted. Now, I was just going to close there. But I need you to know that I've been a part of a handful of churches, and I've never seen so many faithful servants than I have in this congregation. So, what the purpose of this message is to sharpen you. I want you, in, in as much as you may have been intoxicated by the world, I want you to be sobered to the reality of the return of the bridegroom, and I want you to devote yourself to the maturity of his bride.